Picture a scene in your minds just a few years from now. Somewhere in the United States, as a result of a terrorist attack, the President and most members of Congress are dead. A recently emerged leadership has suspended the Constitution under the pretext of restoring order. The new regime has consolidated its power through military might and has reorganized society along rigidly hierarchical lines. Picture now a prisoner being led out into an open space in what used to be the old Harvard Yard just outside Boston. He's introduced as a criminal. He's caused a miscarriage and robbed a woman of the one thing that gives her value in this new society, bearing a child. His crime is announced. A whistle blows, and dozens of young women in communal righteous rage run screaming at him and kick him to death. Now, if I tell you that the scene is set in a place that's now called Gilead, and if I tell you that the ruling elite calls itself the sons of Jacob, and if I tell you the young women are called handmaids, and if I tell you that the victim is described as a scapegoat, that might give you a clue that I'm talking about the novel by the great Canadian writer Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's Tale. Maybe you've read it. Uh, maybe you've even seen, seen the film. Uh, but I guess in a church, Gilead, the sons of Jacob, handmaids and scapegoats might conjure up something else in your mind, might it not? The world of the ancient Israelites. Maybe even the book of Leviticus. For it's there that we learn about the scapegoat who's used to atone for the sins of the people, and we learn, too, about the regulations that governed everyday life in ancient Israel. Now, Margaret Atwood's tale is a chilling one, a grim portrayal of, I guess we'd call it a dystopian society. It's repressive. It's totalitarian. It's tyrannical. But most of all, it's run on biblical principles. Elements of the book of Leviticus have been reinstituted as guiding principles. And it's a brutal world of religious despotism and callous cruelty, and most particularly, the subjugation of women. I don't suppose many of us would like to live in such a society. I, I certainly wouldn't. And I guess most of us would be inclined to think, hey, that's not how we're supposed to read the book of Leviticus. It's not meant to be that kind of a book. It's not meant to have that kind of hold over us. I mean, after all, if we reintroduced the old Levitical laws, that would mean that we shouldn't wear clothing composed of two different kinds of material. Uh, we shouldn't eat oysters. Get the point up here or shellfish, or pork, or, or any of a lengthy list of other foodstuffs. And Steve, I really didn't think you'd be here. If you're a clerical person, a priest, 
letting your hair become unkempt is... <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, your, uh, your night reading for this evening, Steve, is Leviticus chapter 10. <laughs> Pretty weird, right? So sure, we don't take Leviticus as a guide to our everyday conduct. But I've been wondering for a while now, if we don't read the book that way, how should we read it? I mean, it's in our Bibles, and we claim to be people of the book, but, but tell me, how long is it since you read it? Now look, I was shocked last Sunday when Kim read from Leviticus. I mean, I was, But apart from Kim's reading from Leviticus, how long is it since you've read the book of Leviticus? My, impro- my impression is that we've solved the problem of how to deal with it really simply. We don't read it at all. It's a closed book to us. In fact, mostly when we do hear about it, it's either scorned or laughed at or used as a weapon in culture wars over sexual politics. So some time ago, I made myself a promise, a rash promise as as it turned out. I vowed that the next time I was asked to speak here, I'd do a talk on this most closed of biblical books. And then I hear Desi's going to do a whole series on Leviticus. They're going to be Leviticized um, into submission over, over the next while. I'd like to focus on that chapter initially that Sue read for us, chapter 11, the food laws. Now these were a set of regulations that governed every meal that every Israelite Consume. Let me pause. I see Marjorie back this morning with Dennis. Isn't that wonderful? Marjorie, I wonder, can you follow for your menus only what's in Leviticus uh, we're reading this morning? You know, I think not. These laws stipulated which foodstuffs were clean, that is, kosher or kashrut, and those that were unclean, forbidden. Now, it's a strange regimen, but it's one that every serious Jewish home observes right to the present day. We all know that pork is outlawed, of course, but lamb is fine. The the rule was read this morning. Only those animals which have a cloven hoof and chew the cud are okay. So beef is in, and so are goat and deer. But camel and hare and horse, no way. As for fish, it's only those with fins and scales that get on the menu. If the creature lacks one of these, it's out. If you lack both, like an oyster, same thing. So that means that prawns and lobster and squid or calamari, if you want to be fancy about it, these are all banned. Flying creatures that swarm and walk on all fours are forbidden. So no bees for breakfast and no butterflies. But locusts apparently are they're okay if they're to your taste. Now, how do we make sense of these rules? Now, of course, and maybe Desi will do this, I certainly won't, but a whole raft of suggestions has been put forward. A favorite one is to do with health and hygiene. It, it goes something like this. Unclean animals are dirty, and consuming them is unhealthy. Many that are listed as forbidden here are carrion eaters. Pigs and vultures, you see, can thrive on decaying flesh. 
Lobsters and crabs scavenge on the sea floor for dead creatures. So some people think maybe that's what it's about. I think there are problems with that interpretation, don't you? It turns Leviticus into a kind of modern healthy eating manual, and it makes the original writer a sort of dietitian. The other trouble is that it's actually false. One rabbi recently put it this way, the Gentile nations who've been eating foods that are purportedly noxious to their health are, if anything, healthier than most kosher-keeping Jews. Another theory, of course, is that unclean creatures violate boundaries, that they're ambiguous in some way, that, that they don't conform to their class. For example, those that live in water but walk on land, like lobsters, or those that live in water but don't conform to the shape of fish, like jellyfish. Of course, the problem here is that in a system that abhors ambiguity, the locust which is permitted, should be the most detested one of all. It's neither a creepy crawly creature, nor is it a flying insect, but it's okay for consumption. Uh, Just by the way, grasshoppers apparently are all right, just in case you want to expand your menu. Bit crunchy, I'd think, and maybe maybe a little nutty, but you've eaten them, haven't you? (laughs) Termites, you're in trouble. Now, what's notable, however, is that Leviticus itself never makes, tells us clearly what makes some creatures ceremonially unclean and others clean. But it does make clear something else, the purpose of the regime. It comes out later in chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the other nations, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Get that. You were set apart, therefore you must make a distinction. It's to do with them being set apart in some way. Strictly observing these rules was a reminder to the Israelites. And note this, a daily reminder that Israel was different in some way from the rest of the nations. Every morsel of food that they consumed had to adhere to these regulations. And that was to remind every man, every woman, and every child that their true identity was as God's chosen people. When they distinguished between the clean and the unclean, That was intended every day to remind them that they too were distinguished from all other nations by being God's own possession. For the Israelites, food was fundamentally about faith. Meals were moral affairs. Diet was about devotion. Refusing shellfish was a spiritual act. Every mealtime was a perpetual reminder of Israel's resistance to the ways of the surrounding nations. Now, if anybody's getting a bit worried about enjoying lobster mousse or crispy bacon, 
you'll be glad to be reminded of the New Testament message passage that frees the Christian from observing these regulations. Weren't you relieved to hear Sue read that this morning? Acts chapter 10, the story of Peter's trance. You recall it, don't you? Peter's on the roof praying, and he's got a remarkable vision. He's hungry, and he sees a large sheep descending from the heavens, holding all sorts of creatures, animals, reptiles, and birds. And he hears a voice saying to him, Peter, eat anything you like. Peter, of course, knew as much about Leviticus 11 as I hope we all do this morning now, and he immediately recalled the old regulations and protests that his diet has always been pure. But then he's told something, a remarkable declaration. All creatures are fit for consumption. He's told that the old distinctions between pure and impure foodstuffs no longer applies. Everything that God has created is clean. Of course, what's important here, a very important clue to the meaning of all this, is that the context within which Peter gets this vision. And the context, of course, is the visit of Cornelius the centurion to him. Peter's being taught the lesson that the gospel of Jesus Christ extends beyond the nation of Israel. It extends to all peoples. It's no longer a national faith. It's a global one. And for that to be the case, the first thing that has to go is the old dietary regime. Peter himself announces just a few verses later, verse 28, Sue read it, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But... Through that vision, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. You see, the old distinction's gone. The old distinction between clean and unclean animals had disappeared, just like the distinction between clean and unclean people. Acts 10 is a remarkable chapter. It's at this point that we are witnessing the birth of a totally new kind of religion, one that's not linked to tribal loyalty or to ethnic background or to national identity. It's a faith that's multinational, multicultural, and multiracial. Well, I guess we could leave it there and breathe a big sigh of relief and go home to dinner with a clear conscience, no matter what's on the menu. Maybe loin of pork today. Great. I wonder about that. See, I've been haunted by the thought that we might sell Leviticus short if we simply relegate it to antique ritual. If we, if we just say it's superannuated ceremony, it's outmoded custom, and here's why. According to the Apostle Pete, Peter, the church, and I quote, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham put it this way. Though the Christian is so much more privileged than ancient Israel, it is easy to take for granted the grace that has been given to us and fail to acknowledge it 
The ancient food laws were designed to curb such forgetfulness. The ancient food laws were designed to curb such forgetfulness. All of this set me thinking about our own day. Sure, those old regulations have gone. Sure, we're no longer bound by them. But then I had this thought. Have we put anything in their place? What practices have we put in place as a Christian community to regularly remind us of our true identity? But what measures do you take or do I take to remind myself daily that our home is not in this world? That we are, as the Apostle Peter puts it, sojourners and exiles. Sure, the food laws have gone. What's in their place? Of course, routines don't go down very well these days in modern culture. People used to only eat fish on a Friday. People used to attend to the Christian calendar, participate in daily communion, practice Sabbath observance. I don't think they're doing too well in our society. Sometimes for good reasons, of course. They can easily become mere custom or mere ritual. But I'm wondering if we've lost something important to remind ourselves daily of our true identity. Now, I could stop here with a challenge to you and to me. Go find your own. Go find your daily and weekly practices that will confirm this to you. I I thought of stopping there. But when I said that to Frances, she... um, she, uh, She gave me one of those looks. (laughs) You've got to help us imagine, she says, what some replacements might be. Oh, I I, I sulked a bit when she said that, of course, because I thought I had the job done. But as usual, I came to see she was right. Maybe. (laughs) So I'm going to mention to close just three practices, three habits, three actions that might serve as Christian proxies for these old Levitical routines. Simple though it may seem, I really think we have to cultivate daily habits of personal piety. Of course, we live in a world that despises such disciplines. Even in the church, I think we tend to feel that cultivating spiritual habits can be a tyranny or a superstition or or somehow lacks the dynamic of, of spiritual life in the fast lane. I think that's a mistake. Now, of course, it's silly to be prescriptive here. Announcing that everyone has to do a daily quiet time became an oppressive obligation for many people. It extracted spontaneity from the life of faith, but... But, but, but still, I think we lose something vital if we relegate our encounter with Scripture to the odd occasion when it happens to suit us. I, I think it would be to our advantage if we tried to spend some moments with Scripture every single day. If we set aside five minutes to read through a hymn, 
And you get the things Philip was bringing out in our hymns this morning, if we were more conscious of them. If we stopped and read a passage from, from, a, from a spiritual classic. Just a suggestion. But I've come to think that doing something along these lines might serve as an equivalent for the purpose of the old dietary laws. And, and I'm bo- emboldened in this thought by something that one of my favorite preachers, Jack Rhoda, once said. The habits of the heart become the habitations of the spirit. Let me say that again. The habits of the heart become the habitations of the spirit. I think he means means something like this. Those habits, those practices in our lives, they become the spaces where the spirit has the opportunity to engage with us. They become the places where the Holy Spirit has the chance to converse with our deeper selves. They become the ecological niches that the Holy Spirit can occupy. The beachheads, the footholds, the base camps from which the Spirit can launch his colonization of every part of our lives. In her remarkable work on Leviticus, the anthropologist Mary Douglas made a comment that really struck me. I guess it was obvious in a way, but but it it awakened me to a fundamental insight that I'd been missing. Observance of the dietary laws was part of the great liturgical act of worship. Now think about that. Diet, the consumption of food, mealtimes, snacking. For the Israelites, they were part of the liturgy of worship. That was that liturgy that signified Israel's unique identity. It signified Israel's renunciation of the ways of the nations. Keeping the dietary laws was a work of liturgical resistance. Of course, once I gripped that thought, my mind turned immediately to the writings of Walter Brueggemann, theologian. Listen to the title of one of his most compelling books, Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now. Note that. Saying no to the culture of now. Of course he's thinking about Sabbath. And of course the Sabbath is itself the foundation stone of the church's liturgy. Keeping the liturgy of the Sabbath is fundamentally about, what does he call it? Resisting the liturgy of busyness that afflicts our lives as much as it did the children of Israel. Observing the Sabbath, he said, is an act of what he calls sacred stasis, a point of resistance to the unrelenting frenzy that allows no time for rest in a remorseless 24-7 world. But you know, what Brueggemann says about the Sabbath applies to the Christian liturgy, I believe, in its entirety. 
I'm going to go through a few examples here. The church's liturgical practices are intended to confirm your identity and mine as followers of Jesus Christ. If we are indifferent to what happens in the liturgy of the service, or if we're casual about it, or if we're simply blind to its significance, we will never attain the kind of mindfulness that every Israelite acknowledged at mealtime every day. So I'm going to suggest just five points quickly about what our liturgy should do. Our acts of fellowship should stand in self-conscious opposition to the exploitative nature of relationships in the modern workplace. They should intentionally bear witness to the intrinsic worth of people. Our silences in worship should resist the unrelenting noisiness of our world, the remorseless assault on our senses from social media. They should offer the opportunity for contemplation, reflection, and self-examination. Our prayers should free us from the leaden pool of here-and-now targets and help us glimpse transcendence. Our songs of worship should resist the banal and celebrate the profound. They should refuse superficial sentimentality and aspire to emotional depth. Our affirmation of the creeds should combat what Brueggemann calls the endless restlessness of modern life. The frantic policies that he says feed the rat race of anxiety. Thought about this way. Our Sunday morning liturgy is about liberation. It's not a dreary program that the church puts on once a week because, well, we just have to on a Sunday morning. It's not an entertainment. It's not a dull routine, no. It's a work of resistance to the powers out there that would crush us, to the powers out there that are crushing us. Final thought, my final thought. Practice acts of cultural refusal. I've been wondering if we can extend this idea of liturgical resistance further out into the world beyond those doors and perhaps engage in practices that refuse the modern idolatries of consumerism economic growth, insatiable productivity. Brueggemann again. Christians must renounce the dominant script of the world and embrace the alternative script that's rooted in the Bible. So what can you and I do when we walk out through that door? Well, I'm motivated here by a book I recently read by an American sociologist, Christian sociologist, James Davison Hunter. It's entitled, To Change the World. He thinks that the church and Christians can change the world, can transform it, by what he calls faithful presence in our own culture. 
He's got this to say. Faithful presence means a constructive resistance that will challenge, undermine, and diminish oppression, injustice, and corruption, and in turn encourage harmony, wholeness, beauty, joy, security, and well-being. Now, if Hunter's even nearly right, Christians should be a community of refusal. We refuse to capitulate to the norms of our society, as Israel was instructed to refuse the ways of the nations. So here's my simple suggestion. I wonder if each week we could put into practice one act of cultural refusal. Maybe it could be one that recognizes that our colleagues and our customers and our clients have far, far greater worth and far, far greater dignity than their simple value as economic actors. One that in our relationships with our customers and clients reaches beyond a contract to what Hunter calls a covenant. Maybe it could be a weekly action that gives real priority in our workplaces to the enduring over the ephemeral, to quality over slick packaging, to telling the truth over against public relations. Maybe it could be a one weekly act of sacrifice. We hear a lot these days about the importance of leadership. Listen to Hunter. The practice of leadership for the Christian is sacrificial in character. There is no true leadership without putting at risk one's time, wealth, reputation, and position. I don't know. Just a thought, a hunch, a hope that by doing something along these lines, maybe we can remind ourselves daily and weekly and through the year that our citizenship really, really is not of this world. It's just a hope that it might help us to resist becoming narcoticized to a society that's exploited of through and through. It's just a hope that by practicing these acts of cultural refusal, we might reach towards the following description that I'm going to read as I close of what the early Christians were like in the letter sent 2,000 and more years ago to Diognetus, the tutor of the great Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. I leave these words with you. Christians are distinguished from other people neither by country nor by language. They neither inhabit cities of their own nor do they employ a particular form of speech. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet they endure all things as if they are foreigners. They are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. 
They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are reviled, yet bless. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. <laughs> 